Section 20 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16. The Search for a Law of Progress. 2. Comte. 1. Auguste Comte did more than any preceding thinker to establish the idea of progress as a luminary which could not escape men's vision. The brilliant suggestions of Saint-Simon, the writings of Bazard and Enfantin, the vagaries of Fourier, might be dismissed as curious rather than serious propositions, but the massive system wrought out by Comte's speculative genius, his organic scheme of human knowledge, his elaborate analysis of history, his new science of sociology, was a great fact with which European thought was forced to reckon. The soul of this system was progress, and the most important problem he set out to solve was the determination of its laws. His originality is not dimmed by the fact that he owed to Saint-Simon more than he afterwards admitted, or than his disciples have been willing to allow. He collaborated with him for several years, and at this time enthusiastically acknowledged the intellectual stimulus he received from the elder savant. But he derived from Saint-Simon much more than the stimulation of his thoughts in a certain direction. He was indebted to him for some of the characteristic ideas of his own system. He was indebted to him for the principle which lay at the very basis of his system, that the social phenomena of a given period and the intellectual state of the society cohere and correspond. The conception that the coming age was to be a period of organization like the Middle Ages and the idea of the government of savants are pure Saint-Simonian doctrine, and the fundamental idea of a positive philosophy had been apprehended by Saint-Simon long before he was acquainted with his youthful associate. But Comte had a more methodical and scientific mind, and he thought that Saint-Simon was premature in drawing conclusions as to the reformation of societies and industries before the positive philosophy had been constructed. He published, he was then only twenty-two, in 1822, a plan of the scientific operations necessary for the reorganization of society, which was published under another title two years later by Saint-Simon, and it was over this that the friends quarreled. This work contains the principles of the positive philosophy which he was soon to begin to work out. It announces already the law of the three stages. The first volume of the Cours de Philosophie Positive appeared in 1830. It took him twelve years more to complete the exposition of his system. 2. The law of three stages is familiar to many who have never read a line of his writings that men first attempted to explain natural phenomena by the operation of imaginary deities, then sought to interpret them by abstractions, and finally came to see that they could only be understood by scientific methods, observation, and experiment, this was a generalization which had already been thrown out by Turgot. Comte adopted it as a fundamental psychological law, which has governed every domain of mental activity and explains the whole story of human development. Each of our principal conceptions, every branch of knowledge, passes successively through these three states which he names the theological, the metaphysical, and the positive or scientific. In the first, the mind invents. In the second, it abstracts. In the third, it submits itself to positive facts. And the proof that any branch of knowledge has reached the third stage is the recognition of invariable natural laws. But granting that this may be the key to the history of the sciences, of physics, say, or botany, how can it explain the history of man, the sequence of actual historical events? Comte replies that history has been governed by ideas. The whole social mechanism is ultimately based on opinions. Thus, man's history is essentially a history of his opinions, 
and these are subject to the fundamental psychological law. It must, however, be observed that all branches of knowledge are not in the same stage simultaneously. Some may have reached the metaphysical, while others are still lagging behind in the theological. Some may have become scientific, while others have not passed from the metaphysical. Thus, the study of physical phenomena has already reached the positive stage, but the study of social phenomena has not. The central aim of Comte, and his great achievement in his own opinion, was to raise the study of social phenomena from the second to the third stage. When we proceed to apply the law of the three stages to the general course of historical development, we are met at the outset by the difficulty that the advance in all the domains of activity is not simultaneous. If at a given period thought and opinions are partly in the theological, partly in the metaphysical, and partly in the scientific state, how is the law to be applied to general development? One class of ideas, Comte says, must be selected as the criterion, and this class must be that of social and moral ideas, for two reasons. In the first place, social science occupies the highest rank in the hierarchy of sciences, on which he laid great stress. In the second, those ideas play the principal part for the majority of men, and the most ordinary phenomena are the most important to consider. When, in other classes of ideas, the advance is at any time more rapid, this only means an indispensable preparation for the ensuing period. The movement of history is due to the deeply rooted though complex instinct which pushes man to ameliorate his condition incessantly, to develop in all ways the sum of his physical, moral, and intellectual life. And all the phenomena of his social life are closely cohesive, as Saint-Simon had pointed out. By virtue of this cohesion, political, moral, and intellectual progress are inseparable from material progress, and so we find that the phases of his material development correspond to intellectual changes. The principle of consensus or solidarity, which secures harmony and order in the development, is as important as the principle of the three stages which governs the onward movement. This movement, however, is not in a right line, but displays a series of oscillations, unequal and variable, round a mean motion which tends to prevail. The three general causes of variation, according to Comte, are race, climate, and deliberate political action, such as the retrograde policies of Julian the Apostate or Napoleon. But while they cause deflections and oscillation, their power is strictly limited. They may accelerate or retard the movement, but they cannot invert its order. They may affect the intensity of the tendencies in a given situation, but cannot change their nature. 3. In the demonstration of his laws by the actual course of civilization, Comte adopts what he calls the happy artifice of Condorcet, and treats the successive peoples who pass on the torch as if they were a single people running the race. This is a rational fiction, for a people's true successors are those who pursue its efforts. And, like Bossuet and Condorcet, he confined his review to European civilization. He considered only the elite or advance guard of humanity. He deprecated the introduction of China or India, for instance, as a confusing complication. He ignored the roles of Brahmanism, Buddhism, Mohammedanism. His synthesis, therefore, cannot claim to be a synthesis of universal history. It is only a synthesis of the movement of European history. In accordance with the law of the three stages, the development falls into three great periods. The first, or theological, came to an end about A.D. 1400, and the second, or metaphysical, is now nearing its close to make way for the third, or positive, for which Comte was preparing the way. The theological period has itself three stages, in which fetishism, polytheism, and monotheism successively prevail. 
the chief social characteristics of the polytheistic period are the institution of slavery and the coincidence or confusion of the spiritual and temporal powers it has two stages the theocratic represented by egypt and the military represented by rome between which greece stands in a rather embarrassing and uneasy position the initiative for the passage to the monotheistic period came from judea and comte attempts to show that this could not have been otherwise his analysis of this period is the most interesting part of his survey the chief feature of the political system corresponding to monotheism is the separation of the spiritual and temporal powers the function of the spiritual power being concerned with education and that of the temporal with action in the wide senses of those terms the defects of this dual system were due to the irrational theology but the theory of papal infallibility was a great step in intellectual and social progress by providing a final jurisdiction without which society would have been troubled incessantly by contests arising from the vague formulae of dogmas here comte had learned from joseph de mestre but that thinker would not have been edified when comte went on to declare that in the passage from polytheism to monotheism the religious spirit had really declined and that one of the merits of catholicism was that it augmented the domain of human wisdom at the expense of divine inspiration if it be said that the catholic system promoted the empire of the clergy rather than the interests of religion this was all to the good for it placed the practical use of religion in quote, the provisional elevation of a noble speculative corporation eminently able to direct opinions and morals close quote. but catholic monotheism could not escape dissolution the metaphysical spirit began to operate powerfully on the notions of moral philosophy as soon as the catholic organization was complete and catholicism because it could not assimilate this intellectual movement lost its progressive character and stagnated the decay began in the fourteenth century where comte dates the beginning of the metaphysical period a period of revolution and disorder in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries the movement is spontaneous and unconscious from the sixteenth till today it has proceeded under the direction of a philosophical spirit which is negative and not constructive this critical philosophy has only accelerated a decomposition which began spontaneously for as theology progresses it becomes less consistent and less durable and as its conceptions become less irrational the intensity of the emotions which they excite decreases fetishism had deeper roots than polytheism and lasted longer and polytheism surpassed monotheism in vigor and vitality yet the critical philosophy was necessary to exhibit the growing need of solid reorganization and to prove that the decaying system was incapable of directing the world any longer logically it was very imperfect but it was justified by its success the destructive work was mainly done in the seventeenth century by hobbes spinoza and bale of whom hobbes was the most effective in the eighteenth all prominent thinkers participated in developing this negative movement and rousseau gave it the practical stimulus which saved it from degenerating into an unfruitful agitation of particular importance was the great fallacy which helvetius propagated that human intellects are equal this error was required for the full development of the critical doctrine for it supported the dogmas of popular sovereignty and social equality and justified the principle of the right of private judgment these three principles popular sovereignty equality and what he calls the right of free examination are in comte's eyes vicious and anarchical but it was necessary that they should be promulgated because the transition from one organized social system to another cannot be direct it requires an anarchical interregnum 
popular sovereignty is opposed to orderly institutions and condemns all superior persons to dependence on the multitude of their inferiors equality obviously anarchical in its tendency and obviously untrue for as men are not equal or even equivalent to one another their rights cannot be identical was similarly necessary to break down the old institutions the universal claim to the right of free judgment merely consecrates the transitional state of unlimited liberty in the interim between the decline of theology and the arrival of positive philosophy comte further remarks that the fall of the spiritual power had led to anarchy in international relations and if the spirit of nationality were to prevail too far the result would be a state of things inferior to that of the middle ages but comte says for the metaphysical spirit in france that with all its vices it was more disengaged from the prejudices of the old theological regime and nearer to a true rational positivism than either the german mysticism or the english empiricism of the same period the revolution was a necessity to disclose the chronic decomposition of society from which it resulted and to liberate the modern social elements from the grip of the ancient powers comte has praise for the convention which he contrasts with the constituent assembly with its political fictions and inconsistencies he pointed out that the great vice in the metaphysics of the crisis that is in the principles of the revolutionaries lay in conceiving society out of relation to the past in ignoring the middle ages and borrowing from greek and roman society retrograde and contradictory ideals napoleon restored order but he was more injurious to humanity than any other historical person his moral and intellectual nature was incompatible with the true direction of progress which involves the extinction of the theological and military regime of the past thus his work like julian the apostates exhibits an instance of deflection from the line of progress then came the parliamentary system of the restored bourbons which comte designates as a political utopia destitute of social principles a foolish attempt to combine political retrogression with a state of permanent peace four the critical doctrine has performed its historical function and the time has come for man to enter upon the positive stage of his career to enable him to take this step forward it is necessary that the study of social phenomena should become a positive science as social science is the highest in the hierarchy of sciences it could not develop until the two branches of knowledge which come next in the scale biology and chemistry assumed a scientific form this has recently been achieved and it is now possible to found a scientific sociology this science like mechanics and biology has its statics and its dynamics the first studies the laws of coexistence the second those of succession the first contains the theory of order the second that of progress the law of consensus or cohesion is the fundamental principle of social statics the law of the three stages is that of social dynamics comte's survey of history of which i have briefly indicated the general character exhibits the application of these sociological laws the capital feature of the third period which we are now approaching will be the organization of society by means of scientific sociology the world will be guided by a general theory and this means that it must be controlled by those who understand the theory and will know how to apply it therefore society will revive the principle which was realized in the great period of monotheism the distinction of a spiritual and a temporal order but the spiritual order will consist of savants who will direct social life not by theological fictions but by the positive truths of science they will administer a system of universal education and will draw up the final code of ethics they will be able more effectively than the church 
to protect the interests of the lower classes. Comte's conviction that the world is prepared for a transformation of this kind is based principally on signs of the decline of the theological spirit and of the military spirit, which he regarded as the two main obstacles to the reign of reason. Catholicism, he says, is now no more than an imposing historical ruin. As for militarism, the epoch has arrived in which serious and lasting warfare among the elite nations will totally cease. The last general cause of warfare has been the competition for colonies, but the colonial policy is now in its decadence, with the temporary exception of England, so that we need not look for future trouble from this source. The very sophism sometimes put forward to justify war, that it is an instrument of civilization, is a homage to the pacific nature of modern society. We need not follow further the details of Comte's forecast of the positive period, except to mention that he did not contemplate a political federation. The great European nations will develop each in its own way, with their separate temporal organizations. But he contemplated the intervention of a common spiritual power, so that all nationalities, quote, under the direction of a homogeneous speculative class, will contribute to an identical work, in a spirit of active European patriotism, not of sterile cosmopolitanism. Close quote. Comte claimed, like Saint-Simon, that the data of history, scientifically interpreted, afford the means of prevision. It is interesting to observe how he failed himself as a diviner, how utterly he misapprehended the vitality of Catholicism, how completely his prophecy as to the cessation of wars was belied by the event. He lived to see the Crimean War. Footnote. He died in 1857. End of footnote. As a diviner, he failed as completely as Saint-Simon and Fourier, whose dream that the nineteenth century would see the beginning of an epoch of harmony and happiness was to be fulfilled by a deadly struggle between capitalism and labor, the civil war in America, the war of 1870, the commune, Russian pogroms, Armenian massacres, and finally the universal catastrophe of 1914. 5. For the comprehension of history we have perhaps gained as little from Comte's positive laws as from Hegel's metaphysical categories. Both thinkers had studied the facts of history only slightly and partially, a rather serious drawback which enabled them to impose their own constructions with the greater ease. Hegel's method of a priori synthesis was enjoined by his philosophical theory, but in Comte we also find a tendency to a priori treatment. He expressly remarks that the chief social features of the monotheistic period might almost be constructed a priori. The law of the three stages is discredited. It may be contended that general progress depends on intellectual progress, and that theology, metaphysics, and science have common roots, and are ultimately identical, being merely phases in the movement of the intelligence. But the law of this movement, if it is to rank as a scientific hypothesis, must be properly deduced from known causes, and must then be verified by a comparison with historical facts. Comte thought that he fulfilled these requirements, but in both respects his demonstration was defective. The gravest weakness, perhaps, in his historical sketch is the gratuitous assumption that man in the earliest stage of his existence had animistic beliefs and that the first phase of his progress was controlled by fetishism. There is no valid evidence that fetishism is not a relatively late development, or that in the myriads of years stretching back beyond our earliest records, during which men decided the future of the human species by their technical inventions and the discovery of fire, they had any views which could be called religious or theological. The psychology of modern savages is no clue to the minds of the people who wrought tools of stone in the world of the mammoth and the rhinoceros Ticorhinus. 
if the first stage of man's development, which was of such critical importance for his destinies, was pre-animistic, Comte's law of progress fails, for it does not cover the ground. In another way, Comte's system may be criticized for failing to cover the ground, if it is regarded as a philosophy of history. In accordance with the happy artifice of Condorcet, he assumes that the growth of European civilization is the only history that matters, and discards entirely the civilizations, for instance, of India and China. This assumption is much more than an artifice, and he has not scientifically justified it. The reader of the Philosophie Positive will also observe that Comte has not grappled with the fundamental question which has to be faced in unraveling the woof of history or seeking a law of events. I mean the question of contingency. It must be remembered that contingency does not in the least affect the doctrine of determinism. It is compatible with the strictest interpretation of the principle of causation. A particular example may be taken to show what it implies. It may plausibly be argued that a military dictatorship was an inevitable sequence of the French Revolution. This may not be true, but let us assume it. Let us further assume that, given Napoleon, it was inevitable that he should be the dictator. But Napoleon's existence was due to an independent causal chain which had nothing whatever to do with the course of political events. He might have died in his boyhood by disease or by an accident, and the fact that he survived was due to causes which were similarly independent of the causal chain which, as we are assuming, led necessarily to an epoch of monarchical government. The existence of a man of his genius and character at the given moment was a contingency which profoundly affected the course of history. If he had not been there, another dictator would have grasped the helm, but obviously would not have done what Napoleon did. It is clear that the whole history of man has been modified at every stage by such contingencies, which may be defined as the collisions of two independent causal chains. Voltaire was perfectly right when he emphasized the role of chance in history, though he did not realize what it meant. This factor would explain the oscillations and deflections which Comte admits in the movement of historical progression. But the question arises whether it may not also have once and again definitely altered the direction of the movement. Can the factor be regarded as virtually negligible by those who, like Comte, are concerned with the large perspective of human development and not with the details of an episode? Or was Renouvier right in principle when he maintained, quote, the real possibility that the sequence of events from the Emperor Nerva to the Emperor Charlemagne might have been radically different from what it actually was? Close quote. Footnote. He illustrated this proposition by a fanciful reconstruction of European history from 100 to 800 A.D. in his Uchronie, 1876. He contended that there is no definite law of progress. Quote, the true law lies in the equal possibility of progress or regress for societies as for individuals. Close quote. End of footnote. 6. It does not concern us here to examine the defects of Comte's view of the course of European history, but it interests us to observe that his synthesis of human progress is, like Hegel's, what I have called a closed system. Just as his own absolute philosophy marked for Hegel the highest and ultimate term of human development, so for Comte, the coming society whose organization he adumbrated was the final state of humanity beyond which there would be no further movement. It would take time to perfect the organization, and the period would witness a continuous increase of knowledge, but the main characteristics were definitely fixed. Comte did not conceive that the distant future, could he survive to experience it, could contain any surprises for him. His theory of progress thus differed from the 18th century views which vaguely contemplate an indefinite development and only profess to indicate some general tendencies. He expressly repudiated this notion of indefinite progress. 
The data, he said, justify only the inference of continuous progress, which is a different thing. A second point in which Comte and his view of progress differed from the French philosophers of the preceding age is this. Condorcet and his predecessors regarded it exclusively from the eudaimonic point of view. The goal of progress for them was the attainment of human felicity. With felicity, Comte is hardly more concerned than Hegel. The establishment of a fuller harmony between men and their environment in the third stage will no doubt mean happiness. But this consideration lies outside the theory, and to introduce it would only intrude an unscientific element into the analysis. The course of development is determined by intellectual ideas, and he treats these as independent of, and indifferent to, eudaimonic motives. A third point to be noted is the authoritarian character of the regime of the future. Comte's ideal state would be as ill to live in for any unfortunate being who values personal liberty as a theocracy or any socialistic utopia. He had as little sympathy with liberty as Plato or as Bossuet, and less than the 18th century philosophers. This feature, common to Comte and the Sansimonians, was partly due to the reaction against the revolution, but it also resulted from the logic of the man of science. If sociological laws are positively established as certainly as the law of gravitation, no room is left for opinion. Right social conduct is definitely fixed. The proper functions of every member of society admit of no question. Therefore, the claim to liberty is perverse and irrational. It is the same argument which some modern exponents of eugenics use to advocate a state tyranny in the matter of human breeding. When Comte was writing, the progressive movement in Europe was towards increase of liberty in all its forms, national, civic, political, and economical. On one hand, there was the agitation for the release of oppressed nationalities, on the other, the growth of liberalism in England and France. The aim of the liberalism of that period was to restrict the functions of government. Its spirit was distrust of the state. As a political theory, it was defective, as modern liberals acknowledge, but it was an important expression of the feeling that the interests of society are best furthered by the free interplay of individual actions and aims. It thus implicitly contained or pointed to a theory of progress sharply opposed to Comte's, that the realization of the fullest possible measure of individual liberty is the condition of ensuring the maximum of energy and effectiveness in improving our environment, and therefore the condition of attaining public felicity. Right or wrong, this theory reckons with fundamental facts of human nature which Comte ignored. 7. Comte spent the later years of his life in composing another huge work on social reorganization. It included a new religion, in which humanity was the object of worship, but made no other important addition to the speculations of his earlier manhood, though he developed them further. The Course of Positive Philosophy was not a book that took the public by storm. We are told by a competent student of social theories in France that the author's name was little known in his own country till about 1855, when his greatness began to win recognition and his influence to operate. Even then, his work can hardly have been widely read. But through men like Littré and Taine, whose conceptions of history were molded by his teaching, and men like Mill, whom he stimulated, as well as through the disciples who adopted positivism as a religion, his leading principles, detached from his system, became current in the world of speculation. He laid the foundations of sociology, convincing many minds that the history of civilization is subject to general laws, or, in other words, that a science of society is possible. In England, this idea was still a novelty when Mill's System of Logic appeared in 1843. 
The publication of this work, which attempted to define the rules for the investigation of truth in all fields of inquiry, and to provide tests for the hypotheses of science, was a considerable event, whether we regard its value and range or its prolonged influence on education. Mill, who had followed recent French thought attentively, and was particularly impressed by the system of Comte, recognized that a new method of investigating social phenomena had been inaugurated by the thinkers who set out to discover the law of human progression. He proclaimed and welcomed it as superior to previous methods, and at the same time pointed out its limitations. Till about fifty years ago, he said, generalizations on man and society have erred by implicitly assuming that human nature and society will forever revolve in the same orbit and exhibit virtually the same phenomena. This is still the view of the ostentatiously practical votaries of common sense in Great Britain, whereas the more reflective minds of the present age, analyzing historical records more minutely, have adopted the opinion that the human race is in a state of necessary progression. The reciprocal action between circumstances and human nature, from which social phenomena result, must produce either a cycle or a trajectory. While Vico maintained the conception of periodic cycles, his successors have universally adopted the idea of a trajectory or progress, and are endeavoring to discover its law. But they have fallen into a misconception in imagining that if they can find a law of uniformity in the succession of events, they can infer the future from the past terms of the series. For such a law would only be an empirical law. It would not be a causal law or an ultimate law. However rigidly uniform, there is no guarantee that it would apply to phenomena outside those from which it was derived. It must itself depend on laws of mind and character, psychology and ethology. When those laws are known, and the nature of the dependence is explained, when the determining causes of all the changes constituting the progress are understood, then the empirical law will be elevated to a scientific law, then only will it be possible to predict. Thus Mill asserted that if the advanced thinkers who are engaged on the subject succeed in discovering an empirical law from the data of history, it may be converted into a scientific law by deducing it a priori from the principles of human nature. In the meantime, he argued that what is already known of those principles justifies the important conclusion that the order of general human progression will mainly depend on the order of progression in the intellectual convictions of mankind. Throughout his exposition, Mill uses progress in a neutral sense, without implying that the progression necessarily means improvement. Social science has still to demonstrate that the changes determined by human nature do mean improvement. But in warning the reader of this, he declares himself to be personally an optimist, believing that the general tendency, saving temporary exceptions, is in the direction of a better and happier state. 8. Twenty years later, Mill was able to say that the conception of history as subject to general laws had, quote, passed into the domain of newspaper and ordinary political discussion, close quote. Buckle's History of Civilization in England, which enjoyed an immediate success, did a great deal to popularize the idea. In this stimulating work, Buckle took the fact of progress for granted. His purpose was to investigate its causes. Considering the two general conditions on which all events depend, human nature and external nature, he arrived at two conclusions. 1. In the early stage of history, the influence of man's external environment is the more decisive factor. But as time goes on, the roles are gradually inverted, and now it is his own nature that is principally responsible for his development. 2. Progress is determined not by the emotional and moral faculties, but by the intellect. Footnote. This was the view of Geoffroy, Comte, and Mill. 
Buckle popularized it. End of footnote. The emotional and moral faculties are stationary, and therefore religion is not a decisive influence in the onward movement of humanity. Quote, I pledge myself to show that the progress Europe has made from barbarism to civilization is entirely due to its intellectual activity. In what may be called the innate and original morals of mankind, there is, so far as we are aware, no progress. Buckle was convinced that social phenomena exhibit the same undeviating regularity as natural phenomena. In this belief, he was chiefly influenced by the investigations of the Belgian statistician Ketelet, 1835. Statistics, he said, quote, has already thrown more light on the study of human nature than all the sciences put together, close quote. From the regularity with which the same crimes recur in the same state of society, and many other constant averages, he inferred that all actions of individuals result directly from the state of society in which they live, and that laws are operating which, if we take large enough numbers into account, scarcely undergo any sensible perturbation. Footnote. Kant had already appealed to statistics in a similar sense. End of footnote. Thus the evidence of statistics points to the conclusion that progress is not determined by the acts of individual men, but depends on general laws of the intellect which govern the successive stages of public opinion. The totality of human actions at any given time depends on the totality of knowledge and the extent of its diffusion. There we have the theory that history is subject to general laws in its most unqualified form, based on a fallacious view of the significance of statistical facts. Buckle's attempt to show the operation of general laws in the actual history of man was disappointing. When he went on to review the concrete facts of the historical process, his own political principles came into play, and he was more concerned with denouncing the tendencies of which he did not approve than with extricating general laws from the sequence of events. His comments on religious persecution and the obscurantism of governments and churches were instructive and timely, but they did not do much to exhibit a set of rigid laws governing and explaining the course of human development. The doctrine that history is under the irresistible control of law was also popularized by an American physiologist, J. W. Draper, whose History of the Intellectual Development of Europe appeared in 1864 and was widely read. His starting point was a superficial analogy between a society and an individual. Social advancement is as completely under the control of natural law as a bodily growth. The life of an individual is a miniature of the life of a nation, and particles in the individual organism answer to persons in the political organism. Both have the same epochs, infancy, childhood, youth, manhood, old age, and therefore European progress exhibits five phases, designated as credulity, inquiry, faith, reason, decrepitude. Draper's conclusion was that Europe, now in the fourth period, is hastening to a long period of decrepitude. The prospect did not dismay him. Decrepitude is the culmination of progress and means the organization of national intellect. That has already been achieved in China, and she owes to it her well-being and longevity. Quote, Europe is inevitably hastening to become what China is. In her we may see what we shall be like when we are old. Close quote. Judged by any standard, Draper's work is much inferior to Buckle's, but both these books, utterly different though they were in both conception and treatment, performed a similar function. Each in its own way diffused the view which had originated in France that civilization is progression and, like nature, subject to general laws. End of section 20